Well, speaking of the Holy Trinity, one of the most difficult things about the doctrine of the Trinity is that it is so unique and and so beyond us in many ways that it's very difficult to find any kind of, I would argue, probably impossible, but uh, it's safest. It's very difficult to find an analogy that truly uh, teaches and helps us to fully relate to the Trinity. But if you'll notice, even though I've just made that claim, the world is certainly not without attempted analogies. We try so hard to find some kind of analogy to explain the Trinity. There's the attempt of water, right? Water in its three forms, or the three parts of an egg, or the three heads of a you know, three-leaf clover. The world tries so hard to come up with analogies to explain the Trinity. Now, why do we do that? It's because any good teacher knows that analogies are helpful learning tools. The purpose of an analogy is to take a new and unfamiliar concept and relate it to a very familiar concept so that you can bridge that gap and gain some kind of understanding. So any good teacher knows that if you have a good analogy, you need to use it and you need to use it well. And that is what the Apostle Paul is now going to break into as we are continuing in the book of Galatians and hearing him teach us that we are not saved, we are not justified by works of the law. He is going to begin by giving us a human analogy, giving us something we can relate to to continue his point, and then he's going to draw from that and we will hear from him and accept what he says. So if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And we will read through verse 18 for our text this morning. And I would ask if you would please read along. For as we confess today that although these are the words of Paul, they came from his mind and they were penned by his own hand. Uh, We confess that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he did these things. So these are the very words of God. Chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. There is a lot in this text, and believe me, when we are done with this sermon, there is much more that I could say. So just... Be thankful for the mercy of God upon you today that I have left out so much of the historical discussion and doctrine that has come from this text. But I want us to really stick with what Paul's argument here is. And he begins in verse 15, as he says, by first introducing us to what he calls in the ESV a human example or a secular analogy. What Paul is doing with this analogy is he is not only doing what all analogies do, which he's, he's trying to relate his point to something they already understand, but he's also doing something that is referred to as an argument from the lesser to the greater. Here's what he says in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
So he starts with something that everyone understands, that everyone already agrees, that even in the secular world, when you make a covenant, or your Bible might say a contract, or it might say a will, when you make a formal contract, and you sign on that dotted line, you can't just at some later time just make a new contract that contradicts and changes everything you agreed upon. You can't do that. Once the contract has been ratified, you are obligated to obey it. You can't just get out of a contract with a new contract. Now, obviously, in, in the world of human interactions, we have many different kinds of contracts. So some contracts might stipulate in them that you have the permission to do that. I understand that. But, but we're thinking just at a very basic level here. Once you have committed to something, you cannot just change the standards. You cannot just make a new contract that takes it all away. All right, can you imagine if we treated marriage that way? Right? You, you contract with your spouse, I am going to love you and remain with you through thick or thin, through rich or poor. And then all of a sudden you get really poor and you get really sick and you realize how hard marriage is. So you just decide, well, I don't want to break that contract, so here's what we'll do. We'll just amend it. We'll just, we'll just do a new amendment that says, well, actually, if we're really sick and really poor, then we can break this thing off. We'll just add an amendment, or let's just make a new contract and just annul, just, just forget that one, and we'll just start off with a new one. No, no one would argue that you have been faithful to your contractual vows. They would argue you have broken your first contract with the second. And Paul knows that's not acceptable. And Paul knows the people he's talking to knows that's not acceptable. So the argument he's going to make is this, and we'll see him flesh it out, but he is making the argument that this, this Galatian heresy, this, this false gospel that the Judaizers have brought in, they don't realize they've done this, but what they've done is they have now pitted Moses against Abraham. They are interpreting these covenants in such a way that it actually makes them contradictory. God made a promise to Abraham, and then God came in later on and said, uh, yeah, okay, you know what, I'll just make a new one with Moses, and we'll just go a different route. That's what Paul interprets them as doing. So he begins by establishing the point, once a covenant is made and ratified, you can't just amend it or annul it or cancel it you are obligated to fulfill it. And so here's why it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we even hold sinful, feeble, fallen men accountable to their contracts, how much more should we trust that a perfect, righteous, and faithful God will be honorable to His? We expect men to uphold their contract, so we definitely ought to expect God to fulfill what God says He will fulfill. If men can do it, I promise you God can do it. So to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to take us back to the first covenant. So he's comparing two covenants here, Abraham's covenant and Moses' covenant. So let's go back to Abraham's and let's make sure we understood the conditions of that covenant. What kind of a contract was made there? He says in verse 16, he begins by telling us this, and this is a very important word throughout all of Scripture, now the promises were made to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant was first and foremost a covenant of promise. God made promises to Abraham. It was a covenant of promise. The way theologians throughout history have come to oftentimes understand this concept of a covenant of promise is they will call it this. It's an unconditional covenant. 
Now, even in the Reformed tradition, there's some debate over whether we should use these terms, and, and I'm, I, I'm not passionate for the terms. I, I can be convinced one way or the other. But generally speaking, we refer to the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. And that's really synonymous with saying it's a covenant of promise. And here's what we, what we mean by that. When you look at what God give to, gave to Abraham, it was simply a declaration of what God would do. It was just a promise. I will do this. End of story. There were no conditions to it. He didn't say, well, if you do this and then your children do that and then everyone else does that, then I will respond this way. He makes conditional covenants like that. The most, I would argue the Mosaic covenant was like that. So it's not wrong for God to make a conditional covenant. He's allowed to. But the Abrahamic covenant was simply promises. That's all it was. I will do this. You're welcome. I will do this. You're welcome. It was unconditional. It was simply God promising to accomplish something. And we will come back to this in more detail, why this is important, but that's the first thing we need to see. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise. It was not a covenant of law. A covenant of promise is God saying, I will do this. A covenant of law is God saying, you shall do this. The law is do this, you do this, you do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. That's what the law is. But a promise is not you do this, you don't do this. A promise is I will. The law is you will. The promise is I will. So God did not establish a covenant of law with Abraham. He did not establish a covenant of conditions with Abraham. He established a promise to Abraham, an unconditional covenant contract. So here's the good news. There's only one person who can break the Abrahamic covenant, and it's the only being in all the universe who can't break covenants. It's a guaranteed covenant that must come to pass because the only one who can possibly break it is the perfectly faithful God who is unable to break contracts. It is a promise, not a condition, not a law. He gave promises. So the next question, now that we've squared that away, is... Who exactly did he give the promises to? Because as we discussed last week, you see, the, the Jewish people were under the, 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 the mindset that God has given us promises. If, if, if our bloodline can be traced to Abraham, then those promises belong to us. Right? Because that's what the Abrahamic covenant says. Go through and read Genesis. It, he, God doesn't just make it with Abraham. He says, to you and to your seed. So the Abrahamic covenant was with everyone born of Abraham. If you are Abraham's child, God promised you are part of this covenant. So it was to Abraham and to his seed, right? But here's a problem. The word seed in English is just like the word seed in Hebrew. Grammatically, it's very similar in this, that the word is known as a singular plural. It's a singular plural word. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a contradiction. And that's because it is. In, in English language, you have words in singular. If there's only one of them, you call it something. But if there's more of them, then you have to pluralize it. Right? So you might own a car. But once you buy another one, you don't own two car. You own two cars. Right? So cars is the plural, cars is singular. But in English, we have some words that are used for both, singular plurals. For example, the word sheep. If you have one sheep, you have a sheep, and then you inherit another one. Now you have two, not sheeps, not sheepin. You have two sheep. Whether you have one or two, it's sheep. In, in, in Hebrew, the word seed was just like this. 
You have one seed or you have a million seed. It was a singular plural. So the context had to define it. And so here what Paul does in verse 16 is he gives us a divinely inspired interpretation of that word. He tells us, here's what God meant. Was God focused on the singular part or on the plural part? You thought it was plural, but let me show you the mind of God. And here's what he says in verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham. So Abraham is the first inheritor of these promises. They were made to him. And they were also made to one other person. Not to a lineage, to one person. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he told his disciples that the entire Old Testament was about him. Here's one of the ways that we finally see that revealed to us. When God condescended to Abraham, he made a covenant not just with Abraham, but with the divine son that he would one day reveal and send to save the world. The Abrahamic promise was not to every descendant of Abraham. It was to one descendant of Abraham, to one seed, and it was made between Abraham and Christ. No one else has any claim to the Abrahamic promise other than Abraham and Christ. The beautiful thing that we've been talking about, though, is that when you by faith are united to Christ, you then inherit all that he has. So you can become part of the Abrahamic seed. You, you can become a child of Abraham. You can become part of the seed of Abraham. And you can inherit all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant by being united to Christ who has inherited them for you. To see this, keep your marker here. Turn just briefly to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3 with me. By the way, Ephesians 1, 3 through uh, 14 is a great passage to see the Trinity in action. We're not going to focus on that, but I would encourage you, go home and read it and focus on the different members of the Trinity and how they interact for our salvation. It's, it's beautiful. But, but look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And I'm going to skip this. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the Abrahamic covenant and all of its blessings have come to us. We are the recipients of all of God's blessings. But what's the important thing that I left out? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You don't get one ounce of blessing from God apart from his holy son. Don't you dare approach the throne of God and expect anything outside of Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. Did this happen later on? Did, did mankind fall and then God say, okay, you know what? They ruined the blessing. So I, I know what I can do. I'll send Jesus and then he can reachieve the blessing. That's what we'll do. No, this has always been the plan. Look at what he goes on to continue to say. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Being blessed through Christ and in Christ was a decision God did not make after Abraham. It was a decision he made before Abraham. So I want you to see something beautiful here. You ready? 
We're going to go deep. It's like if you've ever seen the movie Inception, deep into dreams. We're going Inception covenants now. We're going deep into covenants. We've got the Mosaic covenant, which came after the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to get to that in Galatians in a minute. But the Abrahamic covenant was actually an expression of a covenant that happened long before it. Theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption. It is a covenant within the Godhead himself. God chose, he made a promise, he made a contract to save the world through Christ before he even created it. So the Abrahamic covenant was merely the first step in accomplishing the eternal covenant that was established before the foundations of the world. So this is how we know the Abrahamic covenant had to be about Christ. It had to be. It could not be apart from Christ. Christ could not be an addition that was later added into it. It was always about Christ because being blessed in Christ was the eternal plan of God before he even created us. So when God came and established the Abrahamic covenant, it had to be consistent with his plan of salvation, which says, I will bless the world through my son. So when the Abrahamic covenant came along, that's all it was. Abraham, I'm making you a promise. I'm going to bless the world through my son. The Abrahamic covenant was nearly the extension of the covenant of redemption. It was always about Christ. It was never about a nation. That was part of it. They were types. They were important. I'm not saying that the lineage wasn't important. The nation wasn't important. We don't have time to go all down those rabbit trails. The nation was still important. But the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately about Jesus. And we can't miss that. And therefore, all who are united to Christ now share in the Abrahamic blessings. God gave the blessing to his Abraham's seed, to Jesus, and all those who by faith are united to Jesus inherit everything that he has. Look at, again, look at, for example, verse 7 of, this, of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of the trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Again, before the foundation of the world, Christ was always the object of all of history. Christ is the most important thing in all of history. The whole plan of God was all about being setting forth in Christ, for Christ, through Christ. He has always been the object of humanity. He goes on to say, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained, and then he uses the same word in Galatians 3, an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You have no inheritance promised to you unless you come to Christ and it's in Christ through faith that his inheritance is now promised to you. You want blessing? You want the Abrahamic blessing? You want the inheritance of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. 
So we have to see, Paul's making a huge point as we go back to Galatians chapter 3. The Abrahamic covenant, this is what he's telling to the Galatians, it was never about you. It was never about you. It was always about Christ. And we're going to see why that's important. Look at verse 17. So now that he has established that the the two elements of the Abrahamic covenant we need to understand. One, it's a covenant of promise. And number two, it's focused on Christ. Now he's going to really make his argument now. This is what I mean, verse 17. Which, by the way, as a brief side note, every preacher loves a this is what I mean passage. Because now I don't have to come up with a thesis for you, right? Verses 17 18, that's your thesis. This is your thesis statement. This is what Paul means. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So Paul is accusing the Galatians that they have so misunderstood Abraham's promise and they have so misunderstood Moses' law that they have set these things in contradiction. That they have made the Mosaic covenant actually contradict the original promises God made, not just with Abraham, but we now know before the world even began. How did they do that then? How does their understanding of the Mosaic Covenant, how does their understanding that, that we are saved by faith and not by works, that we are justified by faith and not by works, that we receive blessing and inheritance by faith and not by works, how is that true? How is the in, inserting works into that equation contradicting Abraham's covenant? Well, he elaborates in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. If the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So in Paul's thinking, here's, here's how we're, that we've now reached the very bottom of the argument. We're finally there. His thinking is that if you say, well, here's how you receive the blessings that were promised to us through Abraham. You obey the law. Paul's saying, well, here's the promise. That's not a covenant of promise. That's a conditional covenant. That's a, you do this, and then I will do this. So they're saying, you are saved by this conditional covenant. You do this, and then I'll do this. But what's the problem we already established? The nature of the Abrahamic covenant was not conditional. So here's what they've turned God into. They've turned him into a liar. At first, God says, I will unconditionally pour out my blessings to the world. And then 430 years later, God goes, uh, okay, never mind, never mind. Uh, if you want the blessing, you got to earn it. It's no longer unconditional. Now it's based on this condition, your obedience to the Mosaic law. So apparently, God, he no longer promises it to us. Now we have to earn it. It's no longer a promise. It, now it has to be earned. So you see, in Paul's thinking, a promise is at odds with law. We've seen this already. Faith is at odds with works. When it comes to justification, not in the Christian life in general, but when it comes to justification, faith and works don't go together. And now we've taken a step deeper. When it comes to the nature of God's covenants, promise and law don't go together. We're either saved by God's promising to graciously accomplish this, or we're saved by meriting it. But they have tried to marry two covenants that can't be married. Or at least they've tried to marry two understandings of the covenants that can't be married. If it comes by promise, then it cannot be by law. And this is great news 
Because here's what this means. The whole plan of redemption, the whole plan of human history, the salvation of God's people, hear this, really important, is not in your hands. That's good, that's good news. If it was based on law, then we now become the object of the covenant. It's no longer a covenant of promise. It's now a covenant of merit. And it's no longer focused on Christ because you don't need Christ if you're just earning your way into heaven. So they've taken the promises out of Abraham. They've taken Christ out of Abraham. And they've put the whole weight of glory on our shoulders. Obey God and be blessed. And Paul says, that's not good news. That was not what made us glory in the Abrahamic covenant. That God would one day say, if you earn it, I'll let you in. That was not the Abrahamic covenant. So why do you think that was the purpose of Moses? Moses did not receive a covenant that contradicted Abraham's. And that's how they understood it. So you might be asking, well, then what was the purpose of the law? And that's why you need to come back next week, because Paul's going to answer that question. <laughs> but let's begin right now by establishing what the purpose of the law was not. The purpose of the law was not a covenant whereby you earned the promises that were made to Abraham. And if it was, then God is a liar. God is fickle, he changes his mind, and he messes up his plans. And Paul knows that everyone here is operating under the assumption that God doesn't do that. So if God is faithful, we need to interpret these covenants harmoniously. And since the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise... And since the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of grace being poured out through Christ, may we never in our day and age now think God has annulled that and said, okay, never mind, you got to earn it. That wasn't his plan in history, in, in, in his eternal redemptive history before creation. It wasn't his plan to Abraham. Therefore, it wasn't his plan to Moses and it isn't his plan today. That's not how you're saved. Turn with me, we'll conclude here. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Paul's going to say this equally clear, I think adding some, some extra detail here. Just turn back a few books to the book of Romans chapter 4. So really, I guess in conclusion, I, I, I want to express to you, there's a, uh, when you, when you, when you, if you were to ever take like a debate class, learn about debate, you would learn about an argument called a reductio ad absurdum, Latin, which means reduced to absurdity. And what it means to reduce someone's argument to absurdity is when you take someone's argument that maybe in, in this particular context seems to make sense, but then when you say, okay, but let's, let's play this thing out. Let's see where this argument is eventually going to take us and it takes you into something absurd. It's called reducing it to absurdity. Yeah, that, that might make sense now, but if you follow that logic consistently, it's not going to make sense later on. And that's what Paul's done. The, the Judaizers have come in and said, listen, God gave us a law. He said that if, if you obey it, you'll be blessed. So, so obey the law and you'll be blessed. And everyone says, oh, that makes sense. Okay, I get that. But then Paul says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's play this out to its logical conclusion. If you believe that, then what are you actually saying? You're actually saying this new covenant is at odds with the first one. The one that came 430 years later has, has, has annulled the first one. You don't, you don't want to believe that, do you? He's, he's reduced their logic to absurdity. And he makes that same point in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, if you would look with me. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So look at his line of thought back in verse uh, 16. Justification, salvation, receiving our inheritance, receiving the Abrahamic covenant has to be based on faith. Because if it's not based on faith, then it annuls the promise. And if it annuls the promise, then it's no longer grace. And if it's no longer grace, then it isn't guaranteed. You see this reductio ad absurdum? You see all we lose when we believe in justification by works? And here's why. God can't promise to accomplish something if it depends on you. God can't say this will happen. He can't promise it will happen if it depends on you. If you're anything like me, he could probably promise it won't happen if it depends on you. So how can salvation be a promise if God is ultimately just crossing his fingers and hope we do our part? That's not a promise. And if it's not a promise, then guess what it also can't be? It can't be grace. You're not saved by grace. Maybe you're saved by some grace. But you didn't put in your work yet. So if you take out justification by faith alone, if you reject that, you've lost the promise, you've lost faith, you've lost grace, and now you've lost God being able to guarantee anything. But glory to God, the salvation of his people is a promise. It's a guarantee. It's unconditional. It's something he set forth and predestined and chose in eternity. And it's something he told Abraham, I will accomplish this in Christ. No one can stop him. No one can take that away. No one can frustrate his plans. The Abrahamic covenant is being accomplished by a sovereign, powerful, glorious God who cannot fail, who cannot fall, and who guarantees His glory and our redemption. Amen.